Hello and welcome to the Reformational Anglican podcast, the podcast that delves into the riches of Reformational Anglicanism for the good of the church today. Uh, I'm your host, Sam Peeler, and with me here is Ryan Scott. Um, so Ryan, I've got a bit of a, a brain teaser just to just open up this episode. Um, not not quite from the the Reformation era, um, but the the Chicago Lambeth quadrilateral is often pointed to as kind of the lowest common denominator shared uh, basis of, of international Anglicanism. Uh, what are the four constituent tenets of the quadrilateral? Um, I think they are that, so there's a statement about the sufficiency of scripture at the start, which quotes the articles. Uh, there's the Apostles and Nicene Creed as a sufficient statement of Christian belief. Uh, there's another one of the two sacraments, and then the fourth one is on the Episcopal. Great job. I've obviously pitched that uh, far too easy for him. Um, yeah, so I guess that, that's that's an interesting one. If you were trying to um, define what, what, what Anglicanism looks like, you'd think, great, well, we're, we're biblical, uh, we're we're Catholic, we're standing in church tradition, so we affirm the creeds. Um, we affirm the the two, I was going to say the two dominical sacraments, the two sacraments. Um, but yeah, the Lambeth Quadrilateral includes the historic episcopate, uh, locally adapted in the methods of its administration to the very needs of the nations, blah, 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 blah. Bishops love sci-fi! That's, that's a core part of, uh, of Anglican identity and polity. Yeah, and I guess you see the same thing. I suppose the, the main one of the main ways of defining Anglicanism would be um, the Book of Common Prayer, the Thirty Nine Articles, and the Ordinal. Um, and so our belief in um, bishops, uh, deacons, and priests uh, comes to us from very clearly from the Ordinal. Um, so yeah, definitely in that sense, it's quite definitional of Anglicanism. Today we're going to be thinking a bit about um, the case for bishops, uh, what uh, bishops do, uh, why we believe in them or what the Bible might say about them, and uh, why they wear those funny robes as well. What is this confusion you have about bishops? Do you actually understand what they actually do? Uh, and at the start of uh, the ordinal it says this, it says, It is evident unto all men who diligently read Holy Scripture and the ancient authors that from the apostles' time there have been these orders of ministers in Christ's church, bishops, priests, and deacons. So that's quite a dogmatic um, start to the ordinal in terms of uh, really the case for bishops. The the writer uh, there seems to think that the case for bishops can be made in quite a strong, quite strong terms, really. Yeah, that that is obviously um, it's a very strongly worded. I suppose we'd want to read that maybe with the help of figures from church history like uh, like Richard Hooker who we were we were talking about last week um so Richard Hooker was obviously I guess had the the Roman Catholics on one side and the the Puritans on the other he he's seen as trying to navigate a um something of a of a middle path between the two um so he doesn't want to say that bishops are are essential um that you can't have a church without the bishops uh, that the church is the hierarchy or anything like that um, but he also wants to say, well, well, we can have bishops. It's a, uh, it's a good long-standing tradition that's been 
held by you know the church down the ages um you can be a valid church without bishops but actually um bishops are as good and wise a way of of doing church of doing church polity as as any other way certainly and i think as evangelicals the term traditional term would be that we believe that bishops are ben essay uh, so they're not of the essence of the essence of the church um but they are beneficial to the essence of the church so they are uh, we think the best way to order uh, church and church governance, we need to have some way to try and think about how we, we're going to organize things. And yeah, I think whenever you look at the case uh, from the scriptures, um, from the early tradition of the church, um, and from just, yeah, I guess following Hooker from reason as well, um, I think we can make quite a, quite a good uh, case for bishops. But uh, we follow the reformers really in saying that uh, what makes uh, a church is um, the preaching of the word of God and the administration of the sacraments according to Christ's ordinance. So uh, we did no way want to deny that uh, churches that don't have bishops um, still have, uh, you know, means of grace there that the Lord is using to bring people to faith and sanctify uh, their people. And actually in uh, the Lambeth uh, Conference, I think it's of 1920, uh, the Church of England recognised that, so they wanted to recognise uh, those bodies uh, which didn't have Episcopal ordination, actually, yeah, they still have in many ways valid means of grace and they still uh, can see evidently that Christ is still at work within those church bodies. Yeah, I guess one of the one of the interesting case studies in this is um, the Church of Ireland has uh, a covenant agreement with uh, the Methodist Church in Ireland. And um, essentially what that was building towards was uh, being able to have a total interchangeability of ministers. And uh, in fact, there, there's a few ministers who hold joint posts in Ireland where they're, you know, simultaneously the, the local local Anglican minister and the local Methodist minister, and there's joint parishes or unions, parishes, things like that. Um, and part of that, part of that covenant uh, agreement was that they came to the conclusion that, um, you know, the Methodists in Ireland don't have bishops, but they have a president and the president, well, he exercises a a very bishop-like role. He exercises oversight. Um, and so uh, the basis of this covenant is essentially that the, the Methodist, Methodist president in Ireland is kind of seen from now on as, as being a, a bishop by another name. I've always felt you have a sort of a bishopy air about you. <laughs> I think the, I think when the new presidents are, are appointed they're they're uh they're co uh commissioned by uh by anglican bishops there and so um all of the people that they then ordain are, are treated as being having been episcopally ordained so it's kind of a interesting approach of well if it, if it looks like a bishop and walks like a bishop it's it's probably a bishop even if it's even if he doesn't go by that title your grace is more appropriate yeah, and uh, I mean, it's interesting. Um, there was another agreement between there. There was another um, yeah agreement between a number of different churches, including the Church of England and various Lutheran and Reformed churches. Um, and at one point, uh, the Anglicans did want to uh, hold up the fact that the Episcopacy is still necessary for sort of full visible unity between the different um, yeah between the different elements of the church. If we were to try and you know get the gang all back together. Um, then really we need to uh, have some sort of episcopacy in order to do that. 
And I think that makes sense if you think about, you know, if you were, to, if we were to try and hold an ecumenical council now, uh, if we were to try and get a sort of joint statement of faith that could be signed by all the different bodies um, across the country, then you know we would need somebody to be sent who could represent uh, the Presbyterians or the Baptists or whoever it is. Um, so we'd need one sort of figurehead uh, who could represent multiple churches. And it's an interesting question, I suppose, at what point does that then turn into a bishop? Uh, I suppose we'd maybe want to say that to be a full bishop, they'd need to uh, enter historic succession uh, and be, you know, connected up with the sort of full history of the church in a sense. But um, yeah, I think we can see why, even if we're not saying that bishops are necessary for um, the means of grace uh, to be at work within the church, um, they are still necessary for the right ordering of the church. And I think we'd want to affirm the Lambeth quadrilateral in saying that bishops are to some extent necessary for uh, full union, uh, full unity between uh, the visible church, even if we you know, might not, even if not all bodies might not necessarily want to use the word bishop to describe that office. Um, so I guess one of the one of the questions we'd want to ask as as Protestants, as as evangelicals, is uh, really can we back up uh, the idea of, of episcopacy from the Bible? Um, is it at the very least? Um, is it something we find in the Bible, or is it something that's consistent with uh, what the Bible tells us about polity and leadership? Um, so I guess there's there's an argument some people would turn to. Uh, it's probably not a great. It isn't a great argument. In fact, um, uh, if you were to look up First um, Timothy three in uh, the New Revised Standard Version, for example, you would uh, you'd find the word bishop written there. Uh, if you've got a an NRSV, you, you can uh, you can Google it in Bible Gateway or something. Find uh, the New Revised Standard Version. So First Timothy three says, now a bishop must be above reproach. Married only once, temperate, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and so on. Say, so, oh, there we go. Bishops are in the Bible. Uh, case closed. Um, Ryan, why is that? Why is that maybe not the best biblical argument for episcopacy? Well, I think there's maybe a confusion there, isn't there, between uh, the word and the office. So, the case for uh, establishing that this office exists in the minds of uh, the early church it doesn't just fall down to whether or not you know a word appears or not um and it's interesting isn't it that uh the same kind of argument in reverse is used to kind of completely dismiss the episcopacy so once you see that actually you know words in scripture a lot of times in systematic theology want we want to define a concept uh under a particular word so take the, the concept of sanctification we, we use that concept in uh systematic theology but actually, if you look at the New Testament uh, and its use of the word sanctification, um, the vast majority of the references, maybe even all the references in the New Testament to sanctification are to do with uh, what's called our sort of positional sanctification. So that um, kind of sanctification that happens right at the start of our Christian life, it doesn't generally describe the ongoing process of God making us more holy in the Christian life. And so there's always a danger that we sometimes attach a full-orbed meaning to one particular word whenever it comes up in scripture. And we can't think that uh, our case for uh, the episcopacy just stands or falls on one particular uh, use of one word. And actually, it's very clear if you turn to Acts chapter 20, Paul's addressing the Ephesian elders there. And he 
uh, refers to them as elders in one part of the passage, and then in another part of the passage, he refers to them as overseers, as bishops. Um, and so, you know, I've heard Presbyterian friends uh, turn to that passage and say, well, there you go. Uh, the word uh, bishop and the word elder is just used interchangeably. Uh, this is just a construct that you've added on much later on. And so that's uh, why we really don't want to um, root our argument in favor of the Episcopacy just you know, on one translation uh, of a word in the New Testament. So it seems like we can't really can't really build a a case from a word study on um, uh, the office of bishop. Um, although perhaps there's some ways in which uh, a we we would want to argue at the very least that we can see how we I mean, show how episcopacy can be uh, in line with scripture, not going against scripture, and in fact um, how some of the some of the New Testament hints towards something like this office of bishop. Um, so we would want to look at maybe um, Timothy and Titus, uh, these guys who who are uh, um, set apart uh, by the Apostle Paul, and they seem to be given uh, authority over over an area, um, over more than one uh, local congregation, and they have uh, responsibility to uh, to lay on hands to appoint elders in various cities. So we might say that Titus, um, functionally, we'd essentially say he's like the, the Bishop of Crete. He's in charge of uh, quite a big area. And his his job is to um, is to ordain, to, to find men who are, who are uh, acceptable to be to be elders um, for the for the good of the whole church. Yeah, it's very clear if um, both Timothy and Titus, they're either, you know, we neither want to say they are uh, full-fledged bishops or I'd want to say that they're some sort of you know proto-bishop um, as a kind of um, representative of Paul's authority um, they, yeah they, they do carry the really the what would the responsibility that would later be shown to uh, to bishops um, so yeah you look at you look at their authority you look at uh, the fact that they were to lay on hands um, they were to uh, see who was qualified to be an elder they were to um, drive away false teachers. They had that authority. Uh, they had the authority to silence false teachers, uh, as well as to ordain and train up uh, successive elders in the future. And uh, yeah, very clear as well in Titus uh, chapter one: appoint elders in every city, um, as you were saying, Sam. So this is an authority that extends over the local congregation um, and into yeah multiple congregations. If you think as well about the Old Testament background. Um, you know, this isn't sort of a definitive thing by any means, but, you know, God's uh, structure in the Old Testament has always been a somewhat hierarchical structure. Um, so you have uh, the Levites, the priests, and the high priest. Um, and then uh, by the time you get to the New Testament, you get sort of chief priests and you get sort of development um, even from that initial model. Um, and even the elders in the Old Testament as well, you think about the hierarchical structure that there were uh, to the elders in the uh, the Old Testament, and so yeah, I guess that's that's the the standard that we're used to coming into the New Testament. So in some ways, the burden of proof should be on the person who says that no, in the New Testament, all um, elders now have sort of equal authority, because um, that yeah, that would mark a change from the way it was in the Old Testament. And I think we get a few hints um, towards saying in other parts of Scripture as well that there was something like the episcopacy that was developed. A lot of times Presbyterians will turn to Acts chapter 15 to defend uh, their view. So Acts chapter 15, you have a church council. The 
the uh, apostles and the elders come together and they have a discussion uh, and they come to a decision and then that decision then is um, sent out to the other churches beyond Jerusalem uh, with a letter kind of binding uh, binding the authority and I think that is a good passage to go to to show that um, yeah we in the New Testament we don't have these sort of local uh, autonomous congregations that all did their own thing um, no we have one church that's all working together in one um, church council uh, but even in Acts chapter 15 look at the role of James um, so traditionally James was seen as the uh, Bishop of Jerusalem and it does just seem whenever you read um, the passage in Acts chapter 15 that he had some uh, kind of elevated role he had uh, the role of in a way being the mouthpiece uh, of the, the congregation as a whole so yeah it's not the case that that James just came to a decision and he enforced it upon the other elders um, but it is the case that his uh, position seems to be um, a little bit set aside from the rest of the elders. And even it says that later on in Acts chapter 21, it says whenever Paul went up uh, with us, two James and all the elders uh, were present. And so James seems to be set aside from the other elders in Jerusalem. And then I think the last um, uh, passage that we can go to that seems to establish something like an Episcopacy uh, would be Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation and the angels of the churches in Revelation. So angel, just uh, the word for messenger. And here we we go back to uh, Archbishop James Usher. Um, and he, uh, whenever he was making the case for the Episcopacy, uh, the, it, these passages in the start of Revelation, um, this was uh, part of how he made the defense of, of Episcopacy. Um, and so think about the book of Revelation. Um, it's a real physical uh, book real physical letter uh, that is sent out to real physical churches um, and the letters are addressed to the angel of the church uh, but they're sort of also addressed to the church the churches themselves as a whole and the letters uh, contain uh, encouragements to the churches but they also contain rebukes and warnings to the churches and they contain commands to the churches um, to change things that they're doing and so that does seem to be you know to me that falls quite naturally to say if it's a real physical letter given to a real physical church uh, written to the angel the messenger of the church of wherever it is then probably this is someone who had uh, a role where you know they were seen as the head um, of that church and other commentators in revelation uh, the only reason why they don't think that um the the messenger of those churches in the early chapters. The only reason why they don't see that uh, as a bishop or some sort of a, a human figure is because that's not how the word is used later on in the book of Revelation, um, which is certainly an, an argument, but I don't think um, it overturns the case for saying that actually, no, this most likely was uh, referring to the bishop of these churches. Um, and then lastly, it's just worth noting, this picks up on uh, the statement at the start of the ordinal about you know, it's evident to all men who read Holy Scripture and the early fathers that the uh, offices of bishop, priests, and deacons were established and were there since the time of the apostles. It's pretty uh, clear if you read someone like Ignatius, who died in uh, 107 AD, so this is extremely early on, and he sees uh, in his day uh, the rule of the bishop, the rule of the presbyter, and the rule of the deacon as three distinct offices um, set apart. So I guess one of the one of the points of um, well contention points of interest at least uh, be thinking about how we 
how evangelicals and and Anglican churches engage with their bishops. Uh, we don't always do that terribly well. I think there there was obviously some particular uh, fallout in the past few years of evangelical bishops, um, evangelical, not evangelical bishops, evangelical do not, um, congregations distancing themselves uh, visibly and quite publicly from their bishops who uh, they felt were uh, were, were potentially even uh, false teachers. Um, but I think I think we'd want to say that that uh, we need church governance. Uh, we're not we're not independent. It's not every man for himself. Um, and Lee Giddis actually makes the point, you know, in a, in a congregational church, the minister is accountable uh, down the ways. He's accountable to his congregation, and the congregation can uh, can oust the the minister quite easily. Um, if you have a, an Anglican church who uh, either don't see the the need for a bishop, don't have great relationships with their bishop, um, then you have a minister who is not really accountable to his to his congregation because that's not really how Anglican congregations work. He's also not really got much accountability to his bishop because he's uh, he's cut himself off from his bishop. Um, so we want to say if we're going to do if we're going to be Episcopalians, if we're going to be Anglicans, then we should uh, we should do that well uh, and make sure that we're not. Uh, for fear of monarchical bishops setting up monar- monarchical incumbents. Yeah, if you want to think a little bit more about um, the role of the bishop and how we should um, relate to them, uh, it's probably worth uh, going to the Church Society uh, org. I think it is. Um, Wallace Ben and Lee Gatiss both have some interesting uh, material on there, both in terms of the biblical case for the episcopacy uh, and how we as uh, evangelical Bible-believing Christians should uh, relate uh, to the office of the of the episcopacy, yeah, I think Wallace Ben has actually written some stuff as well on uh, off the back of James Usher's uh, book, which I think was called a reduction of the episcopacy. Um, so I think Usher um, Usher was was Archbishop of Armagh, uh, my hometown. Um, Usher argued for um, more bishops, but al- almost as if um, like making turning the area deans into bishops, so they'd be kind of manager practitioners uh, overseeing um, some of the more junior uh, ministers in their area, um, which is certainly an interesting, um, an interesting approach from, from an archbishop of all people. I just want to say the whole bishop thing, fair play to you. Yes, yeah, certainly. And I guess there you get maybe a little bit closer to the model of saying, you know, we need, who's going to pastor our pastors? Um, who's going to be the, pe- the person that checks up with our ministers and, and sees that they're okay spiritually, that they're keeping going, that they're putting to death sin, that uh, they're actually genuinely loving uh, the Lord in their own personal life. We need somebody who's going to come along and do that um, pastoral work. So I think that makes tons of sense. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose the, the bishops that we've got at the moment are you know, placed over over huge areas, over dozens and dozens of ministers in lots of cases. And uh, alongside that, I mean, in England, they're because of the establishment of the Church of England, you know, they're sitting in the House of Lords, they're uh, on committees of, of schools and, and all sorts of things. Um, they're, they're pulled in a lot of different directions and, and uh, you have to wonder just how, um, assuming that they're human and they have to sleep sometime and things like that, really how much time they get to spend sitting down with uh, with the ministers under their care. Um, so yeah, maybe there's an argument for a suffragans uh, start to move in that direction having having assistant bishops to the bishop uh, assistant regional managers if you will um but maybe that's a, a 
a direction that the church could move in further. My, my, my wife's uh, from a Presbyterian background, so I, I asked her earlier, um, you know, what, what do you what do you think of when you think of bishops? What are your what are your questions? What are your thoughts? And she, she asked me three things. She said, what do they do? Where do we see it in the Bible? And why do they wear those funny capes? Um, so maybe, uh, Ryan, if you want to just summarize on those three points, that'd be really helpful. So I think we've already uh, touched on the case for the Episcopacy in terms of, uh, you know, the biblical case and the case uh, from the early church. In terms of what uh, bishops do, then Cranmer summarizes um, the tasks of the bishops quite nicely whenever he says that their role is to pass on sound doctrine. Uh, they are to confer holy orders and institute ministers. Uh, they are to settle complaints and quarrels between ministers and their churches. Uh, they're to correct and rebuke uh, vice. So they're to bring uh, discipline. Uh, they're to visit the whole diocese regularly, uh, hold synods, and lastly, confirm people. Uh, so yeah, big big list of things there that they're to do. But I guess you could summarize uh, the rule really in terms of teaching the faith, passing on the faith, um, and rebuking and uh, disciplining error uh, and heresy. And I think one other benefit uh, that we get from having bishops as well as Anglicans is that, you know, you think about that idea of sort of historic succession, whatever, you know, depending on our churchmanship, we might attribute more or less importance to that idea of historic succession. But one of the things that it does at the very least is it is that symbolic connection throughout history. Um, so we can look to the bishop as someone who's been appointed by those who've gone before him. Ultimately, that, that goes back to the, the very earliest days of the early church. Um, and what that does, I think, in our mindset is that uh, it's something that we've talked about quite a bit before in the show. It it gives us a sense that we belong to one whole church, one universal church uh, that stretches from the time of the apostles to now, and it stretches all around the world. Um, and so that sense of connectivity, I think, is a really important uh, benefit that the Episcopal system gives us. That would be an ecumenical matter! And do we have a, an answer on the question of why they wear the funny capes? I think that's a bit higher up uh, my pay grade. <laughs> it's a strange story. About 10 years ago, he was in New York and he got trapped in a lift with about 20 rabbits for the whole night. They started nibbling his cape and everything. <laughs> Great. So let's draw to a close. Uh, we'll finish as we always do with a collect from the Book of Common Prayer. And this one is taken from the form of ordaining or consecrating a bishop or an archbishop. So let's pray. Almighty God, who by thy Son Jesus Christ didst give to thy holy apostles many excellent gifts, and didst charge them to feed thy flocks, give grace, we beseech thee, to all bishops and the pastors of thy church, that they may diligently preach thy word and duly administer the godly discipline thereof, and grant to the people that they may obediently follow the same, that all may receive the crown of everlasting glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.